Ready? Absolutely. Here we go. Here we go. You're listening to Learning Transforms from the Faculty of Education at the University of Victoria. I'm Ted Rekin. And I'm Courtney Baldwin. And we're coming to you from the unceded territories of the Lekwungen-speaking people and the Wasanish people. Welcome, Welcome to, to the, the show. show. Welcome to Learning Transforms. I'm Ted Rekin, and this week we have a special two-part episode with E. Paul Zare, professor and neuroscientist in the Faculty of Education. In this episode, we talk about ethics and science and how complex ideas can be communicated within a forum of public discourse. The, the case you described where they're trying to build in some immunity to HIV and other diseases the, sort of begs the question of, well, how are they, they going to test whether they were successful or not? Are you then going to take those babies and expose them to a potentially damaging virus and see whether your gene therapy worked? Um, that seems to me highly unethical. To, yeah, I, I think the bigger question here is what is it acceptable to do in humans? Yeah. And um, that was the whole focus of uh, Chasing Captain America, really. You know, it explicitly said, you know, I use terms like I, I call the could you, should you issue. Mm -hmm. um, just because we can do certain things, should we be doing them? And uh, the problem with some aspects of science, and it, it arises from usually very benevolent uh, motives. Um, scientists are trying to discover things and uh, trying to create new knowledge from those discoveries. Um, but sometimes we don't always have the wisdom to go along with the knowledge because it hasn't existed long enough to actually uh, be used and find out what's pros and cons of everything. And so we lots of advances happen very quickly. And uh, gene editing is an example of that. And, and that's why I wrote that book, to try and as a way, hoping folks would just read things in a way they wouldn't, and, and people who normally wouldn't think they're part of the bioethical uh, discussions would maybe start to think about things differently and maybe talk to their, you know, political representatives differently and say, look, these are things that we think humans should be able to do or not do. And um, because we're at a point now where we can take techniques that were used in many domains um, to take techniques that were originally designed to be therapeutic in the sense of, uh, oh, someone's uh, got this disorder or this and that. We've identified, for example, you know, gene targets that are responsible for it. A defective protein uh, has been uh, created as a result of a, a faulty gene, so to speak, and look at a deletion or an insertion to correct that problem. And most people would say, oh, that's fine. Um, this, this person had a disorder. Like, yeah, of course we'll help them. That, yeah, that's a that's a slippery slope. Someone who comes slippery. from from the queer community and as a woman, um, and we know that there have been there is selective abortive uh, practices that happen, and we also know that you know certain people in certain positions of power would see my genes as being faulty, and I don't necessarily think that they are. Um, so it's one of those things where it's like where who and when you're talking about this all i can think because i am not a sciencey person i really want to be but i'm not and so all i can think about is things like jurassic park and enemy of the state and all of these like popular culture references about doing things like this where the intentions are great and it always goes horrifically wrong and something always happens that's catastrophic um and so from a person from my perspective i have a lot of fear around those types of things but i also feel like 
I'm not informed because I, I don't know. And I, and I feel like I don't know enough to do it. So it's why, you know, having someone do what you're doing is really helpful. Um, and I'm going to read your book because I want to know more about how that's happening. Do you think it's possible and probably you do, but, um, all of these are such complex, um, complex concepts, right? And so how are you finding a way or how is that how are you doing that where you're able to simplify it enough so that someone like me can understand it enough to have an informed opinion um, without losing kind of what's happening in that? Yeah, I mean, you sort of walk the middle ground, right, between uh, all this, the details around the methodology of the science, which frankly is not necessary to understand to have an opinion about the applications and implications of the science if you understand what the point of it is so you don't need to understand the details of uh, these various gene editing techniques for example to still discuss and have uh, some ideas about the broader bioethical implications of what that technique will be used for and i think that's the critical part and that's why i've used um superheroes as metaphors because it provides a more comfortable way to describe these things. So in my Captain America book, uh, people know lots about the origin story of Captain America. He got this drug injection, super soldier serums, got some stuff shone on him, a Vita Ray treatment that you see in the movies, and then all of a sudden these things happen. So the point of the Chasing Cap book was what would that look like in real science now? What what would we say? And it really is about steroids and stem cells and gene edits and all these other therapeutic things. And you know, it's on one hand we're talking about a, a you know a, a, a character from comic books, but the real life implications are there, and we're seeing some of those things. And in fact, uh, in my book, I actually do advocate strongly for a specific example of where we should be doing all these things, and that's in astronauts. Um, if we're going to actually have folks go to Mars, literally to live and create a colony they should be subjected to whatever enhancements we could possibly provide them because normally the way we evolve is due to environmental pressures and uh, adapting to what's going on. Uh, we don't have the luxury of time, and that takes a long time. Mm-hmm. We don't have the luxury of time we go to, we go to Mars. Um, so these things should be done in advance to help us. But again, like you were talking, the slippery slope. It, if we come back to Earth and in our time now, once you start, once you just realize, oh, Right. Um, that idea of deleting uh, the coding for uh, a gene that codes for um, uh, a poorly folded protein that leads to uh, issues in muscular dystrophy. Well, well, couldn't we also go in and just knock out a regulator of muscle strength and do a myostatin gene deletion, which is another uh, protein that regulates muscle and make people stronger if we wanted to? Or should we go into embryos and start doing that? Should we then be doing that and changing color of eyes and changing other physical characteristics and looking at genome-wide things where we'd start to delete a whole bunch of genes and then we don't know all the interactions of those things? Yeah. And in folks who never consented to it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that, you, you mentioned uh, time and, and evolutionary processes. I mean, the astronaut one, the Martian concept is interesting because the 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 evolutionary forces right down to the atmosphere and the gravity that that we evolved under are are going to be absent there so what will five generations of earth martian born earthlings look like in the absence of those kinds of shaping conditions but then the other question is it's it's one thing to uh, to think about what this technology is going to be used for that's sort of the most direct application and whether it's a good thing or a bad thing that we're going to use it for that. 
And then there's the long-term unknowns. You know, when when internal combustion engines were invented 120 years ago, uh, there was all kinds of potential and application and use that could be seen. But if they could have foreseen 120 years of impact and that it would lead us to a a situation of climate change and global warming, um, those are considerations that it's really hard to, to think what's going to be the outcome when we can't see that far into the future. And, and I think the sort of a similar uh, kind of existential threat to, uh, to us uh, from a science and technology perspective now is the whole realm of artificial intelligence. You know, we're creating machines that it, before too long, and in fact many cases already, are smarter than humans and do things better than humans. And then what happens 100 years from now when, um, when that's continued to develop? You know, we have no idea. Yeah, and what's happening to these babies? You know, like I, I, uh, I now I'm thinking thalidomide. And when birth control pills first came out, they were poisoning women. And everyone was like, it's so great. And then you go on it, and then there are these catastrophic effects that happen. So especially even with gene editing and stuff like that, like how are we, how are people even able to know what is gonna what that's what's gonna happen from doing that because the human body is so interrelated what are your what are your thoughts on that well there's a couple things from those comments i mean one is that um we don't know enough about the interactions of what actually happens in a biological organism when you do all these insertions and deletions i don't think Um, we certainly have a lot of information that's being accrued all the time about um uh, correlating behavioral outcomes and uh, changes in the biology of an organism based on uh, the gene, genes that are discovered for various things like strength and skin color and uh, you know, eye color and hair color and these kinds of things. But we really don't know what happens when you start deleting things and inserting other things in terms of the long-term interaction of how that affects when you then change the expression of whatever that characteristic is, what it does to the interactions with other systems. And that's the, a problem that needs to be addressed. And the same thing comes up, um, you know, the, this book also, since we were talking about the Captain America book, there's a bunch on artificial intelligence as well in there because that's part of one of the ideas I express about how we can change biology with implants and, and that they need to be controlled by something, and that's the artificial intelligence angle. And again, that's another area where our ability to do things is outstripping our understanding of the implications of those things. And, um, and we need to be especially careful in that domain as well. I mean, I quote, and I'm sorry, I've just forgotten the fellow's name, but uh, one of these folks who does a lot of research in artificial intelligence, and he said uh, that we need to be really careful about um, building a, a true artificial intelligence because we're only going to build one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's true. And and again, to come back to the the, the Chinese context, there's a, uh, a a kind of a weapons race now between the Americans and the Chinese as to how to weaponize this. How how do we make an artificial intelligence that's going to be the ultimate defense or I or, or war machine? Um, and if there's only going to be one, you know, who wins? Yeah, I mean that's uh, you know again I. Th- I'm not sure if it was Sean Carroll. I can't remember. Sorry, I'm forgetting the names of some of these folks, but I didn't say this. But someone else said, uh, you know, science uh, just amplifies whatever you apply it to. Yeah. So if if you take it and use it in the context of evil, so to speak, if we're being very sort of uh, black and white about this, um, it's just going to amplify your potential to do bad things. 
uh, if you're trying to do good benevolent things, it amplifies your ability to do that. So that's coming, coming back to the discussion we were having earlier, but you take these techniques, they can be used for all kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Um, the technology doesn't know when it's first developed. It's just a, th- a thing that's used for something. Um, and it can be used for lots of great things. There are lots of really therapeutic and important human benefits to uh, creating an artificial intelligence that would, for example, uh, be very sensitive and predictive and proactive for um, uh, insulin pumps in folks uh, who have diabetes. There's a great example, but that same core operating system of that device could also be used to control a weapon system or to do something else that is used for you know purposes that aren't really helping anybody except advancing some larger political mm-hmm. aim. Yeah. And so, you know, you are very passionate about getting this information out to people like me who don't understand it, but still feel don't need to to be more informed about it. And so why did why did you choose that avenue? Because I know I know enough about you to know that you are, you know, you're prolific in a lot of things and you had an option to do a bunch of different things. You kind of have your you have your hands in a little pot, but this means a lot to you. And so why why put your energy behind this? Yeah, it, it's a good question because, you know, you make choices yeah. and um, uh, you make choices about which road you're going to go down, the one less traveled uh, by or the one in front of you. And um, <clears throat> one of the things I've realized uh, over the years is that there are fewer people doing science communication um, with lots of good success and, and making a difference. And I wanted to spend more effort doing that as you've pointed out now the why behind that really it's i'll make a short story out of even though by the time you say that it's already become long because you're several sentences into it but (laughs) i got into science originally because i wanted to help people like i I was originally going to go into medicine and follow my sister who's a physician uh, but i realized once i got into university and did lots of research projects as an undergrad i realized that what I want to do is create changes in therapies that affect potentially millions of people rather than dealing with individual folks in an office, in a medical office. So, but I wanted to help people. I mean, that was the point. That's why when I eventually set up my own kind of research program, it, had a re, it has a rehabilitation focus because I'm trying to help folks get better at walking after a stroke, you know, strengthen after a spinal cord injury, that kind of thing. I bring that up because that's the same lens I take to the science communication trying to empower people. And once I started doing that as an activity, you know, it's, it's actually uh, this year. And in fact, this month is the 10 year, November of 2018 is 10 years since my Becoming Batman book was published. And so I'm reflecting a bit this, this year, about a decade of, of doing that, those kinds of activities. And one of the things that's really important to me is doing those activities, but also the kind of direct impact I know I'm having. Mm-hmm. Um, when you do science, you tend to fire stuff out there into the ether, so to speak, and it gets cited and it does this and it might change the therapy and so on, but it actually takes quite a while. Whereas if you write a book and you communicate some special idea or knowledge to a community that normally wouldn't have access to that knowledge, it's a direct effect now. Um, so w- where I'm going with that is, you know, I've gotten lots of letters and emails and phone calls uh, on my machine from people who've either read my blog post at Psychology Today or uh, or Scientific American, but Psychology Today is my dedicated blog space, um, or my any of my books and have told me about the impact it's had. You know, I got an email from a guy 
uh, some years ago, and the email title was uh, "How Paul Zare and Batman Saved My Life." And um, I was a bit frightened to open that. I get a lot of, actually, by the way, as an aside, a lot of what I would call quirky emails um, from folks who literally want me to train them to be Batman or Iron Man or something mm-hmm. like that and or building Iron Man suits. Um, but, but I also get them from folks like this guy uh, who talked about how his life had crashed and uh, he was suffering from massive depression and he left school and he was institutionalized for a while because of uh, attempted suicide. And um, he talked about in this letter about how when he came out of that um, and was back home, he was trying to figure out how to rebuild his life and what, what did he want to do. And he'd had an interest in the brain for a long time, uh, just you know, pet interest in high school and, and in, in university. So he had an interest in neuroscience. And he'd always liked comic books and he liked Batman. So he said he went to Google and typed in neuroscience and Batman. And becoming Batman is the first thing that pops up or at that time when you did that. And he read my book and he was like, wow, you, he said, oh, you've managed to combine a bunch of different interests into one, into this idea of doing things. And I'm inspired now to do this. And he's gone back to school and gotten a degree in neuroscience. And I've actually kept in touch with him over the years, actually, to see how he's doing. But he talked about how that was kind of a, a, a point in time that actually transformed the direction he was taking with his life. Um, so I made a difference in that guy's life. By just writing a book yeah. and um, that is very motivational as an author um, to know directly that you somehow did something um, that wound up having this powerful resonance with this person I've had lots of similar stories that folks have shared with me and that just encourages me to keep doing what I've been doing because um, it it's enough for me to know that if I write a book I might help one person yeah so it's a beautiful thing and correct me if I'm wrong, but you're one of the books that you did touched on gender, did it not? Um, well, that, that actually comes up a little bit in the Captain America book. Because, yeah. again, it starts to talk about how there's a continuum of everything. Yeah. Um, I did talk about some gender issues in my uh, young adult book called Project Superhero, yeah. which was a book for tweens to read. And there was a lot of men-women stuff in there where it was more about power structure, I think, is really what I would call that, an empowerment. Yeah. Um, because I, uh, you know, in that book, I, I, which is what we loosely called a science, or pardon me, a, a fiction, nonfiction hybrid, because it involves real stuff, but in a fictional context of a 13-year-old girl's diary. Um, and this girl, who's my protagonist, uh, starts looking at comics and science and school and sports and all kinds of things through this lens of where she's discovering what she already knows as part of her lived experience, but I'm discovering it too as I'm looking through her eyes about what the world really looks like when you're a 13-year-old girl Mm. um, and about how unbalanced it is. And um, it was a very powerful book for me to write. Like probably it's the most transformative thing I've ever done because there's that expression that you don't know what you didn't know until you learn you didn't know it. And as a man, there's just a lot of stuff that I've experienced being the father of two daughters and looking at the world and through some of their experiences. But writing that book, even though it's, you know, lighthearted mostly, but there's lots of themes in there, made me really think about things. Even the way, how are women portrayed in comic books? How many female comic book writers are there? How many, all these different kinds of things, how are women represented in science? What are the discoveries? All these different things. So I tried to make sure 
that when I was writing that book, the message was about what you could do and that my character becomes empowered because she learns all this stuff and she then does martial arts herself. She gains physical power. She does all kinds of other things where she matches up against boys to compete with them on things in the level playing field. And, you know, her female friend uh, is kind of an engineer and like all these different things that are representing what we are seeing more now with, with more equity, but still a long way to go. Mm-hmm. Wow. And so where can people get all of your, because um, I believe I believe you have a website, correct? Yeah, I do. Yeah. Awesome. And we will put the link to the website underneath our podcast. Um, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, I think you were going to say, where can people get the books? So, yes, yeah. and where can people get the books? Um, uh, Uvic Bookstore usually has copies. Uh, they're on Amazon uh, and Chapters has, has them listed. Uh, and in Victoria, a place that always has copies of all my books is actually Curious Comics downtown on Johnson. Um, they've been really good supporters of my work over the years. I've done signings in their shop, and they've just been very supportive, and they tend to keep in stock all my all my books. Beautiful. Yeah. And your your blog posts are uh, in Psychology Today and Scientific American. They, those are probably accessible online. Oh yeah, they're all yeah. yeah. Um, and again, I have links off my Zare.ca homepage for all mm-hmm. this stuff, the different writing and where you can get books and just the different ideas. Um, and uh, yeah, it, it it's just about trying to think about reframing the world through a different lens and sharing information in a different way. I just think that. We've already talked about this, but just you know, refreshing the idea that one of the things that's you, you're actually coming back to one of the questions that was asked about why doing all this. I mentioned the anecdotes about folks. The other thing is that I do it, continue doing it also because there's a lot of interest in it doing not just transformative where you changed my life or you did this kind of thing, which is awesome, but just um, people read this stuff. I mean, they they which shows me that people are actually interested. You know, in these characters. I know I'm using a bit of a uh, you know, using the superheroes as a, a bridging mechanism so we can talk about something familiar. But people are interested in all this science. You just have to frame it in a way that's accessible. And too often, science is framed uh, in the context of how another scientist would want to consume that knowledge, which is backwards to how you need to do it. You need to think about the uh, the audience on the other side of the page or on the other side of the microphone or the other side. Of the, you need to think about the, the audience you're trying to communicate with. How can they best receive this information? Thanks for listening. Be sure to join us for part two of this episode when we talk with Paul Zier about his best-selling books and the ways in which he uses the concept of superheroes and superpowers to help us understand anatomy and physiology. Learning Transforms is brought to you by the Faculty of Education and the Association of Graduate Education Students. Learning Transforms is produced by Julie Remy. Sound design is by Xavier Arujo. Special thanks to E. Paul Zare. I'm Ted Rekin. And I'm Courtney Baldwin. Thanks for listening. <laughs>